Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. Welcome back to Stuff About Money They Did Not Teach You in School. I'm Xavier Angel, certified financial planner, and I'm joined today uh, by my co-host, Eric Garcia, certified financial planner. How are you doing today, I'm Eric? good, man. So my daughter was, I, was well, we were, I think she was in the office, and uh, she was looking, I don't know where she pulled it up, but she was looking, oh, she was on her, on her iPad, and she pulled up podcasts, Apple Podcasts, because we were talking about them, and she asked me about our show, so she pulled it up. And she said, co-star? You're the co-star? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, I thought you were the star of your podcast. I'm, I'm like, no, Xavier. Xavier's my co-host. We're, we're co-hosts. <laughs> so she was upset to know that I had a co-star. And then second. Hey, you're, you're, still, you're still a star to me. Thank you, man. And then second, she saw the episode that said, um, it, was, it was a throwback episode that we republished, How to Deny Your Kids to Better Their Financial Future. So she, I remember that one. She read the title and she goes, how to deny your, do you do this to me? I said, yeah, I want you to have a good financial future. So anyway. And how'd she respond to that? That, that I, she thought I was the star. I guess that's, I don't know. Uh, she was, no, she was trying to knock me down after she found out yeah. that I denied her. But y'all, if y'all like what y'all sure. are, if y'all like what y'all are hearing here on the Stuff About Money podcast, I encourage you go follow us on your favorite podcast listening app. You can also find us on stuffaboutmoney.com. We'd love to hear from you. A couple weeks ago, or I think our last episode that published was we answered some investment questions that we've been getting a lot from clients. So if you have any specific questions on that website, stuffaboutmoney.com, we'd love to hear your question. So today is going to be a fun episode. Uh, for a couple of reasons, we have a guest, a buddy of mine, Rob Laka. Rob is, let me, let me get all this right. He is the professor of practice at the A.B. Freeman School of Business and executive director of the Albert LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. I get, did I get all that, Rob? It fits on one business card, I promise. Does it? Yeah. Okay. And if y'all are watching on YouTube, you can see that I have my Tulane hat on. I am a Tulane alumni, so I'm happy to have Rob here. So I walked no up way. to Rob, I don't know, maybe seven, eight months ago. Was it Rob? And I said, hey, dude, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And he's like, yeah, yeah, what's it about? So I told him the title, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. He looked me dead in the eye and he goes, dude, you know I teach this stuff in school. So we have a business professor on here. Rob, tell us a little bit more about your work. Yeah, I mean, again, you're, I'm, the reason I've been so hesitant on coming on the show is if I actually give away all the secrets here for free then my business model fails, right? So how's that work, Eric? So, so you want us to, um, well, I mean, you're keeping me in business. If you teach people how to do, <laughs> if you, if you taught people better about money then we, they wouldn't need us, man. I'm just saying we're doing this as a service to a, to a, to an alum who, who's proudly wearing that, that, that angry wave hat. I love that. Man. You know? And so I'm just saying, you know, when, when it comes around for homecoming weekend and we expect you to come back and make a donation. Okay. <laughs> is that what it is? Well, we'll see. I'll tell you what. My donation will be continued. I, I hold him. I'm a hold him to that. My donation is going to be tied to the amount of follows and likes that we get from this show. I like that. Let's yeah. Let's monetize that. We're going to see how we can get this blasted out, and and not just the show. We're going to see how many people uh, like not just the show, but this individual episode, but the, the podcast itself. Okay. If you guys, if you guys start to rake it in, because. You know, you're, this this one goes viral, then then roll wave. This is like this is like school night at Chick Fil A. We're gonna donate ten percent of all the revenue that's generated from this show. Okay. 
Uh, I'm gonna have to bring some people on from Loyola. We'll, we'll get Loyola on this as well. Here, here's, Let's I mean, do here's it. the fun yeah, fact. I like our, this. A little competition. Our show's not monetized, so you can have, we'll give you a hundred percent. We'll give you a hundred percent. Hundred percent zero zero. That's the that's the thing they don't teach you in school. There you go. There you go. Maybe I'll come sit through one of your classes and you can teach me how to monetize the show. Two fun facts about Tulane. Okay. Two fun facts about Tulane. I graduated there. Um, but that's not the fun fact. Rob teaches currently my favorite class that I took when I was at the business school. So cases in entrepreneurship. It was a fantastic. So the way Sid taught it, we'd go in the first half. He would kind of present. He'd have a business owner present a business problem. And the second half, we would, as a class, we would debate how to solve that business problem. And then the actual entrepreneur themselves would tell us how they solved the problem. And it was a Thursday night class. It was an awesome class. One of the things I remember about it was when I took it, Jen and I were engaged and she was up at LSU. So it was my last class of the week because the business school had Fridays off. Do you also have Fridays off? No, we stopped doing that. Oh, man. All the other, all the other students. Ruin, ruin relationships, I guess. That's the reason. <laughs> all the other students hated us. So it was my last class of the week. Sure? So I'd take it. It was a night class and I would head up to go see to go see Jen. Second, Sid, um, Professor Pulitzer, I think I think he let us Pulitzer, I think he let us call him Sid. He's a business owner. He's still there. He's an entrepreneur here in New Orleans. I visited him during office hours one day and he was trading his own personal one of one of his personal investment accounts. So he's like, hey, would you like to uh, watch me uh, invest my portfolio? I'm like, yeah. So for, like literally for 40 minutes he talked through what he would do, how he would pick his stocks, you know, and and what he would look for, um, you know, the board of directors, the the C suite, how many shares do they own? Are they selling? Are they buying? Uh, PE ratios, and it was just kind of one of those experiences. I was like, oh man, I, I kind of like this. This is kind of fun, and that was kind of one of the, I would say the the bricks and the foundation of me wanting to come into the investment space. So those are some fun facts about Tulane. All right, Rob, I ask you the question we ask everyone. What's something about money that you now know that you wish you would have known 15 or 20 years ago? Your student debt is not monopoly money. It's real money. Ooh. I like that. Let's... I, I definitely like that. You know, we're all too often we're taking out loans for school. And just, you know, as a student, we don't realize how much we're accumulating the interest with it. So I, I definitely like that. You're going to have to unpack that. Like you just can't say it's, it's not monopoly money. And then, I mean, tell, tell, it's not, what do you mean? I mean, that's, what, that's mean? what kind of we, we fool ourselves. And look, there are two things that have happened in my life that I think I've gotten into this frame of mind that was completely wrong. One is the amount of student debt that I took on. And two is how hard it would be to be a new parent. Like both of these things, I literally was just like, Oh, it'll work out, you know, like we'll be fine. Like I'll figure it out. And Eric knows this, like I've got an amazing wife who was very smart about how hard it would be to be a new parent. And I was like, oh no, it'll be cool. Like I'm going to keep running my business and I'm going to keep teaching and I'm going to keep traveling and, you know, like we'll figure it out. Like we'll have these late nights and, you know, there'll be some, you know, diapers and, you know, we'll they'll get sick a few days, you know, and we'll just deal with it. But like, that was, oh, we'll just deal with it. And then you go through it and you're in the fog of war. And it's just like every single day and night, you know, you just are like, wow. And I expected the rest of my life not to change with how much this changed my life, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you yeah. know, we were talking about this, so, you know, earlier, but like I, I, one of the reasons that I look back on that and I'm like, I tried to, really changed how I approached my own business and then I was traveling and all of that. Like that mattered a lot to me to be able to shift up. And, and my wife actually, she had changed jobs where she was traveling a lot before we had our first kid and she changed jobs uh, and she, she focused on work here in New Orleans. Um, and I, she's smarter than I am. She knew what was coming and she was preparing for the storm. And here I was just, you know, thinking I was going to ride it out without even, you know, buying any supplies. Um, <laughs> So that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the other example of something in life, but man, it was student debt was the same for me. I didn't realize what I was getting into. Rob, do you, you care? So a lot of the, the, the individuals that I'm working with right now, you know, student debt loans that comes up from a planning standpoint. And a lot of them are ashamed of, of how much they've accumulated over the years. 
Um, you know, do you mind sharing how much um, you came out of school with, you know, and, and, and what were some of the things that you did so that you could begin paying down that debt and, and getting that off your plate? Yeah, no, we'll get into the thick of it. So um, I graduated from Yale in 2005. Well, there you go. That's um, why you had debt. Well, so here's the interesting thing, okay? So I, I was raised by a single mom who was a public school teacher. And so we didn't have much money. Um, Yale was actually really good. They're even better now. Now uh, it's, I mean, and this is something your audience really needs to know if they've got kids that are super talented and want to go to one of these top schools. They're need blind, so they'll admit you regardless of your financial need. Hmm. And then, um, you know, I'd need to check online, but I think it's if you make less than uh, $125,000 a year as a family, your kid goes for free. Yeah. Like it's all paid for by Yale's endowment. And, by, and I think a number of schools have that, uh, have that same sort of approach. I know Tulane's very generous with need-based aid. We're not that same level, but we're very generous with need-based aid. So I would say to you, you know, if your listeners have kiddos that are really talented, encourage them to apply everywhere and go for it. Don't let cost prevent your kid from, you know, at least aiming for the moon, yeah. you know? And then oftentimes, you know, they'll get packages, you know, either merit-based or need-based or both that will allow that to happen. Now, for me, I got into Yale and I was so excited to go and I thought that I was going to have to pay for it all. And so I was cobbling together all of these little scholarships, okay? This is like early days of the internet, right? So this is, this is 2000. Uh, and I'm a senior in high school in Roanoke, Virginia, and uh, on my, you know, 386 computer, uh, logging on through AOL, like this was like, you know, early days of the internet, I was, I was trying to figure out, you know, where I could get scholarships. So I was applying to every little piddly essay contest that was out there, right? And so I, I brought in, it was over $30,000 of little essay contests wow. and Rotary Club and Kiwanis Club. And I just went for it all and got $30,000 covered. Now, that compared to the cost of a Yale education was still pretty, you know, small. Compared, I mean, four years of a Yale education at that point, I think, was still like forty, forty-five thousand dollars $45,000 a year. Um, you know, that still doesn't cover all of it, right, by, by any means. But it helped me. That helped me. Um, and then uh, I did work study. So I was a computing assistant. I helped... I literally, this was like, you would come into the computer lab back in the day and figure out why the printer never worked, you know, and I was the guy to help you to figure that out. Or I would come to your, uh, to your dorm and help you install the new RAM that they, you know, you yeah. just bought to be able to make sure things were moving faster or whatever else it was. So like, that was my job. And so I worked and I worked every summer. Um, and so I worked my way through school. I, I, I had all this scholarship money, um, had a lot of really generous need-based aid from Yale, um, but I will say, I still came out with some student debt. Like, even after all of that, I still came out with some student debt. Um, I think they're even more generous these days, and someone in my situation probably wouldn't have had to mm -hmm. come out with any debt. Um, but I came out with some student debt, and it changed the choice that I had to make out of college. And so that's the first thing, is that I, don't re I didn't realize at that juncture that, that the course of my life was being determined by financial decisions that I made to go off to a school and... and and even to think through, like, I studied abroad, more of that I had to cover on my own. I'm really glad I did. It was a wonderful experience. But, like, that was a choice I was making, and there were financial consequences of that, you know, while I'm in college. You're taught your education matters so much that the financial implications are worth whatever it costs. And I just think that's something that, you know, as you're teaching your kids how to manage money, you want them to make those decisions, but then to know what they're getting themselves into I still think they should make those decisions, but I think they should know what they've taken on. And so I went into investment banking right out of college to be able to pay off that debt. Um, I did. And honestly, looking back on it, it was not the right fit for me. I was really miserable. It was kind of a false start mm. in some ways in my career. Um, like I was really glad that I got trained in the things that they trained me in. Um, but like the people that I was surrounded with and the culture and the, and the sort of um, – just the profit at all costs mentality. This is right before the Great Recession, right? I mean, it really was not, um, it didn't jive with who I am as a person. And I knew that even then. You know, it's, you it's know? interesting you bring that up because I've been reading a lot lately and Xavier and I have been having these conversations. We've been having these conversations with our kids, Xavier's kid, my kid, we're kind of including everyone about this idea of does money buy happiness? And what's really interesting, what I heard you just say is you were in a financial situation that you took a job 
I would imagine investment banking was play, paying pretty well. You, you made that decision to help you pay off your student loan debt, but it was a decision that you had to make and it was miserable. And I think that's where we start to see like, does money buy us happiness? Well, sometimes we're forced to do things that we're, we're stuck in miserable situations because we need the money. And so that's yeah, I told my mom what the what the offer was, and she says you're taking that job. That's more than I've ever made in multiple years yeah. of work as a public school teacher. Uh, and so the ironic part is, she also had taught me growing up something that just still is a it's a cornerstone for me, which is the idea that money ain't rich. And that that sounds like pretty uh, almost hillbilly, kind of simplistic, right? But like it's a really profound thought. Money ain't rich. And it's because like real riches come from time we spend with people who we love, experience that we share with, experiences that we share with them. Um, you know, real riches come from me having the time to take my five-year-old to swim lessons and being there and watching him to succeed in something that he was so afraid of a few days before he didn't even want to get in the pool, right? Like that's really, that's the riches of life. If me pursuing money is taking me away from those things, then I have given up the thing that I should be cherishing in the first place. A master and class, so, master yeah, class on yeah. building wealth right there. I love it. That's, and that's wealth, right? Money ain't rich, but, but you do need money to be able to navigate the world, right? And so for me, okay. what I learned really early on in that is that, you know, that none of the chasing after profits alone, money alone, would lead to fulfillment, would lead to riches. It actually led to some very dangerous hamster wheels where I just had to keep running to stay on, right? And that was something that I learned very early on, and thank God that I did. I, frankly, it was how I was raised, because my mom was not teaching elementary school art because she was making a lot of money. She was doing it because of the, the moment of lighting up a student's eyes and inspiring them, and they'll come back to her to this day and say, Miss Lockie, you're the reason why I ended up doing what I did, right? And so, like, that's real riches. I knew that earlier on, but I somehow forgot that when I looked at a, at a you know, bank account that I was worried about, frankly. And that was something that caused me to make different choices than I, looking back on, you know, had to learn those lessons again right out of college. So, yeah. And that, that's part of the conversation in, um, uh, that Eric and I have been having with, with our kids is, you know, can money buy happiness? It, it, it does making a lot of money make you rich? Um, and those lessons are what we actually explain to our children is, no, making, making a lot of money may give you uh, instant gratification, but it doesn't make you rich. It doesn't make you happy. Um, so you, you explain that well. I'm actually going to have them listen to that, that explanation that you just gave. Well, good, because they're not going to listen to the other one that you guys did on, uh, on, their, right. on, on the things they can't. <laughs> this yeah. is the only reason I do podcasts, to get really smart people on to talk about the things that I want to teach my kids, but they won't listen to me. But maybe they'll listen to, <laughs> maybe they'll listen to Rob. Maybe they'll listen to Xavier. So this is, this is, this is a, a big secret you know, ploy to teach and educate my kids about money. I want to go back. I want to go back to the, the student debt idea really quickly. I, um, this is a conversation I've been having with my son. He's going to be a, a senior, I'm not a senior. He's gonna be a freshman at LSU next year. He's got almost, almost a full ride. Um, I think pretty much it's a full ride. And I told him, I said, and I'm like paying for college. This is a, this is a values driven thing. I have some clients who are like, I don't want my kids to have to worry about college. I'll pay for it. I'm like, you know what? My kids are going to make a decision on what college they want to go to. Maybe I'll help them. Maybe I won't help them. But like, there's no retirement loans for me. So I would rather fund my retirement and let them take student loans if they have to and help them figure that out later. So I told them, I said, look, graduating from a good college debt-free is far better than graduating from a great college buried in debt. Hmm. And I think kind of where you... So- yeah, I actually, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the, the chance that I had to go to great colleges, like really great colleges. I think that we undersell the value of great public schools too. And so I think it's, it is a fit thing. For me to get out of um, a more insular, smaller, constrained worldview that I had, I needed to go somewhere that was going to challenge me socially, challenge me yeah. academically. Um, and just so I could prove to myself that I was able to to be at that level. I mean, like, 
I had straight A's all the way through high school. I literally didn't get a B. I got straight A's, and I worked my tail off. I took the SATs, and I did not do well enough to be able to get into the top schools that I wanted to get into. And the reason is I didn't know you were supposed to practice. I thought you just showed up and took the test, right? And so then, I mean, I can literally remember, and you know, I apologize in retrospects to, to Borders and Barnes and & Noble, but I didn't have the money to buy the books, and so I would go and just read the books in Barnes and & Noble. And, 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 and like, I, I, sorry, ruined your business on that. <laughs> you know, it's not a library, Rob. But like, that's literally how I then did better on the SATs. Like I, and I wrote those essays and did those scholarship competitions. And I got to Yale, and I, I had a thick Southern accent that I had to lose because people were, it was immediately like they looked at me different, thought that I didn't belong. Mm. And so you can hear it. My accent's I, pretty standard American, whatever. And, so you, you didn't roll up into and Yale you, and be like, y'all money ain't rich. You didn't roll up with any of that, well, right? That, I rolled up and say, hey, man, look, this is where I'm from. It's from Roanoke, Virginia, and that's where I sound like. Like that sort of a thing. Did you really have that accent? You know, doesn't go wrong. It was pretty thick. Yeah, it really yeah. was pretty thick. Um, like my mom and I joke about this cause she says, uh, wash, right. Wash. And I always say, mom, mom, when I lived in Washington, DC, right. I was like, you took the R from, from Virginia, right. Virginia and moved it into Washington. Right. Washington. And you say that you're from Virginia, Virginia, Virginia and Washington. Right. That's funny. Like that's an unfair trade. So, yeah. so you're not you're not saying don't take on college debt. What you're saying is go into it eyes wide open. You're 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 advocating for thoughtful, intentional conversation about borrowing money. That's right. And so the undergraduate story in particular, because I had so much need based aid and I was willing to do the work. I, I know a lot of people who didn't didn't do the summer jobs, who didn't work during the school year because they thought it would be too much, they took on more debt than I did in a similar situation to me, right? So it's, it's doing it in a responsible way, but then also knowing if you do have debt, if that is the thing that is defining your decision-making, it's dangerous. It was a risk because I went into investment banking and I then suddenly felt like I needed to buy the clothes and buy the expensive shoes mm. and that's the that's the hamster wheel I'm talking about. Because yeah. then just to just to stay just to stay static to be in the same place and stasis is never good. We, we're human beings that are meant to be dynamic and learning and growing. To stay static, you have to keep running as fast as you can, working eighty hour weeks just to make that analyst salary to be able to buy the stuff. And and then guess what? You're living in an expensive city and you're you know you're stuck. Right, yeah. you, you start to end up in a place where that money doesn't go as far, and and that is a vicious cycle that does does not end well because then all of a sudden, you know, you're in your mid thirties and you've gone up the ranks a bit, but you're not actually really making wealth because you're spending the money you're making, right? And you don't have the real wealth of life, which is experiences and friendships and and all of that. You're you're basically taking everything that you could have done with those years to build real networks and real trust. And this is something that I do want to make sure your audience hears loud and clear from me. It's what I teach my students is the best thing you can do in your early to mid twenties is build relationships. It's not make a bunch of money. Okay. And the reason is relationships will compound. And the more that I invest in you and you invest in me, those relationships compound. I call this the compound interest theory of careers. Okay, it's so mm. the compound interest theory of careers. If I invest in you genuinely and I spend time with you and I get to know you, even if we're peers or maybe you're a mentor of mine and I, I spend time learning from you, well, guess what happens 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line? You're going to be that person who's an executive. You're going to be that person who's in senior leadership. You're the person who's going to be influential, who's going to be the person I can then, you know, when I'm at that next stage of life, rely on. And that'll be built upon yeah. deep trust, yeah. right? It's not built upon a transaction. So let me add, let me add to that. So if any of your students are listening to this, because you know, because my my contribution to the uh, to um, to AB Freeman School of Business is going to be tied to to downloads, is <laughs> is notice relationships are important, one hundred percent. If you are making a lot of money, save it and invest it early. Go back and listen to some of the earlier shows on compounding interest. Man, I've had market um, market analysts on here, really smart people managing 
billions of dollars literally saying, man, I wish I would have taken advantage of compounding interest when I was younger. So if you are making money, don't buy into the YOLO lifestyle, right? Yeah, you only live once, I get it. But save and invest so when you are 35 and you're miserable in your job, and you want to leverage some of the relationships that maybe you've built, and you might have to walk away from from a big paying job to maybe a lower paying job, you actually have money to be able to do that and sustain yourself to be able to do something that's more enjoyable, that's more aligns with your values, so you're not in that hamster wheel of life. And that, this is that's exactly what I've been reading about this idea of of happiness and money. This guy charted the hap, like happiness like in our early 20s, and if you're watching on YouTube, you can watch it. Early 20s, you're happy, and then your happiness starts to decrease. You know, you have kids, and then you find yourself stuck in a job, and then you have a midlife crisis, and then you get divorced, and then you get happier again. Why? A lot of it has to do with with available money. Like money doesn't doesn't buy happiness, but money gives us security and freedom to be able to to do things that that we might be stuck with if we if we don't have it, or if it's tied up chasing that lifestyle that you talk about. And that's right. And I've read those same studies and I don't want to end up divorced. I don't want to end up unhappy at any point in my life, right? I don't want to end up, even if it's hard having kids, right? I don't want to end up unhappy in that. I actually want to appreciate it for the lessons it has to teach me. And so I approach each of those stages, right? As, okay, how do I make sure I'm making the most of this particular moment? And it's right. It, it, you have to you have to make sure you're, you're being thoughtful about the long-term value of your money by investing it early the long-term value of those relationships. And so it means having an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset mm-hmm. in many ways for me. Yeah. So if a friend is saying to me, hey, uh, you know, when I'm early in my career, hey, you know, I want you to come meet somebody. I think you guys will really get along. Let's go have a beer. Like it's doing that in a way in which is responsible. So yeah, I'm going to go have that first beer and I'm not going to say, no, I can't do it because I don't have the money, right? I'm going to spend the $5 on a happy hour beer, but it means I'm not staying out all night and being, you know, having a great bacchanal of an evening, right? In order to, to like be responsible in that, like there's a middle ground in that. I mean, there's a, there, everything in moderation, right? That sort of uh, if you're going to get philosophical, philosophical about it, the Aristotelian mean, right? You find that golden mean. Everything has a sort of balance to it. You can build real relationships and you can be smart, smart with your money without having a scarcity mindset where you're afraid of, of of not even taking those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I posted this the other day. Um, Remit Sethi, he's a financial writer. He said, spend extravagantly on the things you love and cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. That's it. So invest money in the things that are meaningful to you. And the problem is I meet with people like, you know, 20 years down the line and and they're like, oh gosh, I don't know what's, I don't know what's happening. I've made good money. They've made six figures and they they have nothing to show for it because they spent it on things that are, that are not meaningful to them. They they might've given them, you know, as Xavier said earlier, you know, initial satisfaction. They put a, a, a big fancy pool fancier than it needs to be. They take big fancy trips fancier than they need to be. I'm not saying don't, don't do this stuff, but do it within reason so that you have money to spend on the things that are really, really meaningful to you. So that's right. Yeah. And I think if you look at what some of this, in my opinion, some of the smartest and, and most, uh, thoughtful people uh, about money, someone like a Warren Buffett would have to say about these types of topics, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why did he do the giving pledge? If you go back and read his letter for the giving pledge, where he's giving 99% of his wealth away, it's because he recognizes that that money is going to have greater benefit in society by giving it away than by him holding that $100 billion. Like, that is something that's really meaningful when you, when you think about it. And in that letter, it's important to go back and read why. Right? What's the reason behind that? He says he thinks that more people who are putting money in the offering plate or giving to the United Way, okay, he uses that, are sacrificing more because they're not going to uh, a movie or to a restaurant in order to be able to be charitable, right? And, and so they are making choices of things that mean a lot to them. And it's a bit of the story of the widow's mite, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like that, yep. that little bit meant so much more in that instance. And, and so that's something I think that it's important for folks who care about understanding money's influence on, on your own thinking and your approach to the world is if you're approaching it with an idea that like it's scarce, I have to hoard it, right? And I have to be so afraid of taking any risks. Well, you're actually limiting yourself in ways that you don't even know, yeah. right? But if you're being abundant and living out your values through that, that experience with money, 
then actually you're going to find people who share those values and who appreciate what you're doing. And you're just also going to feel better. You're going to be happier. You're going to have greater fulfillment by being someone who is an abundant person who's looking towards life with abundance. You're going to find better opportunities in that way too. Yeah, so that's... And so I think those are types of things where money just becomes this end-all be-all. And it's not. It never was meant to be. It is a function of a of a hopefully a healthy society that is had full of healthy people, right? And that's the goal here. It's not about... It's not about money for its own sake. Yeah, man, I love that. So our, our fifth pillar of financial security is to give to others. Now, it's interesting in one of these studies about giving, about um, happiness and money. So the, the studies basically say like after a certain amount of income, depending on where you live, you know, if you have enough to provide for your basic needs, there, there's no more significant increase in your happiness based off of the money you make. There was another study that came out and the guy said, no, no, wait a minute. Money does buy happiness if you spend it right. And he gave three three ways of how you spend your money that that gives you happiness. And number one was you spend it on others. I just found that fascinating that he's saying, no, no, money does buy you happiness, but you have to spend it on others, which which basically that's it's just what you told us there. So let's go ahead and um, pivot real quick because like you teach entrepreneurship and we haven't even gotten to entrepreneurship. So a lot of our a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, they're they're business owners. We have a lot of clients in the um, the pharmacy space. Xavier works with a lot of pharmacists. I've got a lot of clients who own um, independent insurance agencies around the country. So give us like I don't know like like the, the the what do we need to know as entrepreneurs? What's the most important thing that 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 you would have for us? Whew. Well, uh, we've already gotten into a lot of it, which is just entrepreneurship is not uh, it's not a way of doing business. It's really a mentality. It's it's a way that you see the world. Right. And so if you're thinking entrepreneurially, that means you're able to solve problems. You're able to be creative. You're able to look at a situation and understand it for what it truly is, not what you think it is. Right. But then also able to innovate on that to be able to create something new. And so um, one of the first lessons I teach my students when they walk in my classroom is your world is not the world. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're going to create a company and it's not because you had some, you know, blinding light moment where all of a sudden you have this epiphany and you knew something that somebody else had never thought of before. That's not what entrepreneurship is about. It's not about the light bulb. It's about the execution, right? And and it's not about you. It's actually about the customer. It's about the person who's willing to part with their money. Think about that magical act. They literally have money that they think you're offering is the best thing that they can spend it on a fungible resource that they could spend on anything else. And they choose to spend it on what you have to offer. And it's new. So it's kind of a risk that they're going to spend on this new thing as opposed to the thing that they're used to spending on. That's a powerful idea, right? And so if you're able to solve their problem better than anybody else has, it's because you understand the problem and you understand the customer better than anybody else had before. And so for me, entrepreneurship is about problem solving, but it's about customer centricity and really understanding in a design thinking way. Again, trying to really design around the customer and around their problem, around their experience of the problem, rather than doing it in your own head from your own experience. Because your world is not the world. Your idea of the way the world's going to function, it won't turn out that way guaranteed. Right? It will never work where you come up with the idea and then the, the answer that you think is going to be the answer is the one that, that suddenly flows out from the the way the business gets built. So, and so I, so, you know, I often say that the, you, a business plan is, is broken the moment it's finished, you finish writing it because, because you haven't actually done anything with, with your own ideas. You should get in the, the depths of it and really try and understand that customer. So how important is it for the entrepreneur to be empathetic? Because a lot of what you talked about there is customer-centric, client-centric. How does empathy play into this process of entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's the most important in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, um, and I think this is what's really interesting is that we glamorize these entrepreneurs that that build something based upon their their own, almost their sort of like, I'm, I knew something better than you and I'm better than you. Like I, this sort of like machismo, this like, I'm, I'm great. This like, this like, uh, heroism. It's a, it's about like, it's like sword in the stone. This guy has this sword and he's the only one who can have, and he goes out to slay the dragon. Like that's how we view entrepreneurs. It's, It's a hero's myth, right? 
But it never works that way. And even the people who promote that image about themselves, like, no, it never actually worked that way for you either. Like, you're surrounded by people who gave you ideas. You're surrounded by people who gave you support. You're, you're a part of something that's far bigger than yourself. And hopefully you talk to customers to learn what they actually wanted. It wasn't that you just sort of rolled out with your own great grand vision for what the world would become, and it suddenly became that. And so empathy is the answer to that, right? Because empathy is about me understanding that, that somebody else has an experience of the world that is just as valid as mine right? That they are, they are equal to me. Even if I have more money than them, or I have a different education than they have, or anything else, like that person has an experience of life that is worthy. And if I understand them in that way, in a deep, profound, searching way, and I actually try and not just put myself in their shoes, but then walk a bunch of miles in those shoes, like then I'm going to understand their lives in a way in which I can solve their problems, and then they will be willing to part with their money, and then that's how you make money. Like, that's the way it actually works in entrepreneurship. And so empathy is, is the answer. It's very much some, something that the best-in-class entrepreneurship faculty, okay? And we're talking, like, the folks at HBS and Stanford and Cal Berkeley. Like, that's the word that they often use. And it, you wouldn't think of it in a business school context that empathy is the driving force. You would think it would be, like, stronger words, like, you know, like, more heroic words. Empathy is a soft word. It's 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 a it's a it's a uh, a searching word. It's a it's a I don't have all the answers kind of word, mm-hmm. right? And and, yeah. and that's actually the way that we 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 teach it because it actually matters a lot more to know that your world is not the world. The customer's world is the world you care most about. That's a different picture, though. That like like you said that that we have or or that was taught is you're talking about like that's so like touchy feely. Right, like successful business owners are touchy. They they're in touch with their feelings. They're able to manage those emotions and those feelings. We had a guest on um, several several months ago, Doctor Billy Williams, Xavier. And one thing he always talks about, he goes, "You got to remove emotions sometimes from decisions, but you have to be aware of your emotions to be able to manage them better." And especially as you're trying to understand a customer. You've got to know that, that they have a, ra- a whole array of life experiences and you're trying to really understand them and isolate them in terms of their decision making. And that's going to not, not always just be rational. It'll also be emotional, right? And so, I mean, if you want to connect with a customer and really build brand loyalty and really have that shared purpose, like if you're building a new company that's on a mission to do something that is, is meaningful, like... That takes empathy. It takes understanding other people. Because otherwise, you're doing only what matters to you. And guess how many customers there are that are exactly like you? One. That's it. So you're buying from yourself, essentially. right? And so if you want to sell to large markets, you better understand who makes up those markets. And frankly, it means getting out of your own perspective, your own biases. It's getting out of your own sort of worldview that is more limited and understanding that other people's values and other people's perspectives are just as valid as your own. They're just as worthy as your own. You have to go understand them. One of my favorite stories about this is a friend who built a company. She'd just gotten back from a Fulbright and was in the thick of the Great, great Recession. And she went and she stood in, um, in unemployment lines. And, and she realized that talking to those folks, no one wanted to be in the unemployment line. It wasn't like they were like proud of that day when they had to show up there. They were hurting. They, they, were, they were suffering, right? And so she just struck up conversations to be like, I hear from employers that there are jobs. <laughs> You're telling me it doesn't work for you. What's going on here? And she just listened. She had empathy. She really tried to understand what their experience was like. And it was a, a mismatch that in order to get a job at, say, Staples, you had to be trained and have a prior job at Staples or Office Max or somewhere like it. And then in order to, you know, so it's a, it's a chicken and egg. To get the job, you had to have already had the job. <laughs> and so you couldn't, it didn't work, right? And so what she ended up doing was building an online platform where you could get trained and certified in the Staples way or the Office Max way. And it was things that you and I wouldn't know. Like if you walk into Staples and somebody stand in front of a printer, if you're a sales associate, should you walk up and talk to them and try and convince them to buy one? Should you sit back and wait for them to ask you a question? Like, what's the right dynamic there? 
Well, I don't know. You don't know because we never worked at Staples before. But Staples does have a way of doing that, right? And so she actually figured out with those companies, partnering with them, what would the training they would want people to have if they could have it. She then used it as a, as a way of doing a very low-cost course where people could get that training, get that certification, and then she would help them to find those jobs. That company sold to Manpower, and uh, you know she lives in Hawaii now, and has she did really well for herself. But that's she did it while solving a real problem that really mattered, especially in the middle of the Great Recession. That's fascinating. I mean, there's so many. Um... Hey, Eric. Oh, Xavier's got something to say. <laughs> Tom, it's like that CNN thing where the kid the kid comes walking in. Right? <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't see her. She busted into the room, so. So I didn't in, in, early, in the early pandemic, I was watching CNBC. I watch Squawk Box every morning. I don't watch the news during the day. I like to watch it before or after, but not, not during the day because it's just a bunch of, bunch of you know, crap. So this was like, man, like everyone had gotten set up at home. And mm-hmm. Becky, I think, is it Becky? Is that her name on CNBC on Squawk Box? She's got her setup <laughs> yeah, behind her. And there's an orange book on her bookshelf. And it's The Art of Giving a Fuck was the, was the <laughs> <Yeah>. book. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, Lynn has that book. So I'm like, that's on her bookshelf. The next morning, the book was gone. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, somebody also, probably. So during that same time, during that same time frame, you had you had a newscaster who actually um, he stood up. He had his, his top was his coat and tie, and he stands up and he's in his boxers. So you had a lot of this going on within that within that first um, first few yeah. months of the, of the of the pandemic. So we can handle Grace that's running funny. through. That's all good. I love that story, Rob, about about listening in um in I don't know where I picked this up, but this was early, early, early in my career. Someone told me and it, it kind of tie it ties to this whole empathy thing about putting the client first and, and successful businesses do that. And it was it was a sales it was a sales presentation. And this is this is what the trainer said. They said, you know, you're not gonna get clients by trying to differentiate based off of your product. Because the reality is most consumers can't tell the difference between your product and your competitor's product, right? There's financial advisors out there all over the place. I talk to people all the time like, oh, who do you work for, Edward Jones? Are you this? Are you Merrill Lynch? Are you like, they, the average consumer can't differentiate me, my firm versus another competitor's firm out there. He said, people try to differentiate based off of good service. He goes, how many people have you done business with? Because they say, I give you good service. He goes, service, he goes, bad service will push people away from you, but rarely will someone just come to you because they want good service. That's a given. Like you shouldn't have to differentiate on service. He goes, if you want to differentiate yourself, it needs to be on client experience. And then there was a series of questions that he asked. How do clients feel or how do your customers feel after they do business with you? What stories are they telling their friends and their families about having done business with you? And there was a series of other questions that they asked. I'm like, man, that is, that's really good. And um, years and years and years ago, we created a, a culture book for the business. Like, I wanted to set the culture. I wanted to make sure that we're we, you know, that that we hire and fire and make decisions based off of that culture. And what I did was, rather than saying these are the values that I, or this is the culture that I appreciate. I kind of went around and surveyed or questioned, put together a questionnaire for our staff and asked those questions. Hey, what are our clients saying about us? And then took all that data and distilled it and created um, our core values based off of, based off of, of what their answers to some of those questions about what differentiates us about that client experience. So, man, I, I love that you're, you're talking about that, and I want to I want to kind of come back to where we started about Tulane, about teaching, about student debt. A couple of things. Um, one of the things I loved about um, entrepreneurial management, I think you taught that course as well for a while, is that I the did, professor. Yeah. And I have the book here. This is the only book that I actually kept from from my college days, and I kept it. The guy made photocopies of articles, and and he, he basically created his own textbook. There's an entire chapter, two chapters that stood out to me. One is about human behaviors, understanding human behavior to grow your business. And the other one was the value of stable relationships for the entrepreneur. How important it is for entrepreneurs to have stable relationships because running a business, making decisions, serving people, isn't it's hard. 
it's, it's, it's a difficult task. And he said, when you have stable relationships and supportive relationships, it's a lot easier doing that task. So um, you talked about work study. I did work study at Tulane. I worked with Peter Raschuti in the Birkenrode reports. So <laughs> I never took I never took the Birkenrode's report class, but sitting in an office next to next to Peter and having conversations about investments, and that was right around the time they started putting on the um, the symposium. So I actually helped organize the symposium. That was right at the time Hancock put together the Horizon Fund, which was the uh, the, wow. the mutual fund yeah. that tracks the um, the uh, the the companies. So for those of you listening, Birkenrode Reports did stock analysis on Deep South small cap stocks. So I got to sit in that office and have the conversations with Peter and listen to him talk to CEOs and executives, and it was a fantastic experience. But I want to I want to come back to student student loan debt, because this is something that I think is really important that, uh, especially, I think pretty soon, unless it's been delayed again, people are going to have to start paying their student loan debt back. It's been, it was paused for for so long during the pandemic. And I I just have a question for you. We talk about having these conversations thoughtfully, not to avoid student loan. I've heard things like an appropriate amount of student loan debt is your first year's expected salary. So if you're going to be an investment banker and you're going to make $80,000 on Wall Street, then you can take on $80,000 of debt in your undergrad. You know, you teach at a private school. Um, I graduated from that private school. Tulane's not cheap. Um, how, how, what are, what are some, maybe some of the, what's the thought process, the questions that maybe parents need to be having with their kids and does this same does this apply for graduate school as well or, or are we just talking about undergrad like what's what are some i guess give us the framework maybe to have some of these conversations yeah so i was uh, coming out of undergrad i was able to pay off all my student debt fairly quickly because of that investment banking job which i hated <laughs> and then when katrina hit i quit that job i moved down here and helped out and was with americorps and you know we talk about you know going from making a ton of money to literally working for almost free um it was it was quite a change uh but it was most rewarding work and frankly it's it's the reason why i live here now is because i fell in love with this place and everything that new orleans is about in terms of building a a city that's uh that's built for our lives and not built for just to work right or not just built um, for opulence, or not built for other things. Built for it's built for art. It's built for culture. It's built for family. Um, and so, yeah, I, I then ended up going off to graduate school at Duke, and um, my plan was actually to get a joint master's in public policy MBA. And I looked at and realized how much debt I was accruing just from the public policy degree. And actually, because I got a, a really great fellowship called the Presidential Management Fellowship. Um, because I got that fellowship, I went ahead and just did the MPP. Now, I'm teaching at a business school today, but I have an MPP. Uh, but I took a bunch of my classes over at Fuqua, the business school, and actually did a research assistantship for a couple of Fuqua professors. And so I had that exposure, had that experience, but I didn't get the degree. Um, for me, that was it, it worked out fine. Because look, I'm teaching at a business school, and I was able to then eventually start my own company. That we grew it. We were able to advise a great number of clients, and really, I mean, that was where I was traveling a lot, and uh, that was where I, I said I had to stop traveling so much because my wife realized better than I did what having a family was really going to be all about. Um, but that's how I paid off the student debt is because I, I looked at how much I was paying every single month off the, the grad school debt from Duke. And even though I hadn't gotten the joint degree, I didn't get the joint degree. I, I stuck to just that one degree. It was still $485 a month for a 30-year note. It was fixed at 6.8% by our government, guys. Like that was the, the government rate was 6.8%. It's it's right. Well, and th- it was, it was, frankly, think about a car note, right? We're saying that that value to society is that that's, that's, you know, worth three times less than a car or it's, you know, think about that, right? Like that's, that's literally when you're fixing it at that point by your own government. And this isn't debt that if you ever go bankrupt, it goes away, right? When we look at the trillions of dollars of student debt. It doesn't go away right now. Now, personally, I don't think that, you know, 
widespread forgiveness is the answer either. I think that because I don't I don't think that's the answer, you know, but I do look at that amount of debt and I see a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Right. I see student debt as a huge problem where people have signed up for something that maybe they didn't know what they were getting into. Or even if they did, they didn't read all the fine print. (laughs) And then that check, you know, they have to cut every month like for a 30 year note. You're just paying interest for pretty much the entire first dozen Mm-hmm. Even 24 years because, you know, you're only hitting into principal by the time you really get to the end of that curve, right? And so that was something that I realized as I was making those payments and based upon my experience coming out of college. And that was, frankly, one of the reasons why I took the risk to be an entrepreneur after I served in government. And my business partner and I, we worked very, very hard. We worked extreme hours. It was intense. And I'm very grateful to him and to the people that we got to work with and to our clients because it was um, it was really important for me at that point in my life to be able to work that hard to pay off that debt. And I paid it off within that 10 years, but I'll tell you this, if you go back and run the numbers, I didn't just pay the principal I took out, mm-hmm. I paid the principal plus a whole lot of interest that didn't even eat into the principal, and so I actually paid like well more than I thought I was taking out. And that's a real problem. Yeah, right? and, right. and and if you wouldn't have worked that hard to pay it off, there's no way you can do that with two littles at home because you can't pull all nighters at at our age. Well, you're you're younger than me, but even still, at our age, you just you just need more sleep. You just don't you don't recover as fast as you did when you were 25 and 26 and 27. Well, and look, I'm I'm fortunate that Tulane really uh, values the fact that I can. I can be a business person and I can, so I sit on boards, like I do other really meaningful work while teaching here and I bring that back into the classroom in a real world way. Like my final exam for one of my classes is a board simulation. (laughs) That class gets better and better every year. Why? Because I'm able to bring in real world experiences and translate that into how I arrange for that conversation to go for those students in that simulation. I'm Um, I'm going to come audit one of your classes next semester. Would love to have you. That, Would love to have you. That'd be, that'd yeah. be a lot of fun. But I mean, that's all really meaningful though for me is that I was doing that consulting work while also teaching in the early days of teaching at Tulane. Yeah. And I reached a point where I was like, okay, I know what enough is. And I also know that, that frankly, my family is what I need to focus on here. And frankly, the teaching is really, you can pour as much into it <laughs> as you want to and get more out of it. And so, you know, that was what the shift was for me. Um, it meant that I was traveling a whole lot less. And it also meant that that, that consulting business that I built, you know, it was, it was, it was good for that season. Bro, you just um, said something else so. that's going to launch us into another hour long. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to signpost it for another episode you said, I know what enough was. Man, we're going to talk about that at another uh, on another episode because I think we're already past our time here. So in the spirit of good board uh, practices, does anyone want to make a motion to start wrapping up this podcast? Xavier, I think he made a motion, motion. with his eyes. Is there a motion. second? I second. Second. <laughs> I so moved to wrap up. Well, this look, I, I, I'll tell you, it's probably good. We're wrapping up now. I'm I'm doing a podcast from home today. For those of, for those of you who can't see, um, I'm working from a home office, and there's a lot going on around us. I think I think Xavier just podcasted with a dog barking, furniture getting delivered, and I, I don't know, um, kids. I don't know. It's just it's amazing. Anyway, Rob. Dude, man, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. It was a long time coming. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Great. Truly, really appreciate you guys. I appreciate what you guys are doing. This is great. Awesome. And we'll put some links in the show notes. So if you want to find Rob on LinkedIn and see what he's doing over there at Tulane and some of the boards that he sits on and, and follow him, Rob does some really, really cool stuff, y'all. So uh, he, he's, definitely a good, uh, he's definitely a good follow. If you like what you're hearing, share it so people can learn stuff about money they didn't teach you in school. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor not affiliated with the Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated.